Good evening, everyone. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the best Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast you'll ever listen to. Today is Friday, October 29, 2021. You've come to the right place to listen and learn about the history of one of America's most interesting and sought-after communities. Yes, I am referring, of course, to the town of Greenwich in Fairfield County, Connecticut, in the United States of America. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I am the host, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and it is my pleasure to welcome you. You've tuned in to the first ever special Halloween podcast coming to you from a ghastly secret location. As we are counting down to Halloween just in a few days, this, I can assure you, is the most frightening, scary, spooky, creepy, ghoulishly wonderful time of the year. I wish you a happy Halloween, one filled like those before it in years past, filled with special treats and lots and lots of exciting tricks. May your jack-o'-lantern burn bright, black cats prowl the night, shiverly shivers run up and down your spine, and ghosts and goblins ring when spooky witches go riding into the nighttime skies, and the moon laughs from up on high. Celebrate Halloween with good cheer, my friends. Beware the creatures of the night. May you enjoy a safe and spooktacular Halloween. And with that said, my friends... On with the show we go. Coming up on today's show. Located next to the Second Congregational Church on East Putnam Avenue, the New Burial Grounds Association Cemetery was founded in July 1833 as an independent burial ground association. Easily accessible to visitors, a stroll among its numerous gravestones will take you back in time and history, and I'll share some details with you. Pranksters were out and about in 1905, greasing trolley tracks at Chickahominy, while another group came close to setting a dump cart on a runaway journey down Greenwich Avenue. Not everyone was on board with the town's Halloween mischief makers. I'll share with you a letter penned and published in 1931 lamenting what was called Halloween rowdyism that year. Public Halloween celebrations were well attended and held at various locations in Greenwich. In the early 20th century, what was then the Holly Inn and today the Bush Holly House National Historic Site in Coscob, headquarters of the Greenwich Historical Society, was transformed one Halloween night into a haven for freaks, spirits, demons, and poltergeists. Carl White Retired local history librarian at the Greenwich Library authored a fascinating piece in 2015 that you can find on the library's blog blog site titled Ghost Stories of Greenwich, and I'll share that with you. Inscribed on gravestones, epitaphs are phrases, poems, and other texts honoring the deceased. They are found throughout Greenwich's cemeteries, and I'll read a sampling of those for you. I think that you'll find them to be quite fascinating. 
My friends, don't let the vampires scare you away. I'll have all this and more as our adventure into Greenwich, Connecticut's Halloween bygone times unfolds. Stick around. We're just getting started. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... An award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. 
Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President at Jeffrey Matthews Financial Group, whose financial advisors are knowledgeable in the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. Learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor's Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. That's 203 485 Seven five nine five. You know, my friends, luck would have it that I am recording this segment of the podcast on Tuesday evening, the 26th. It happens to be the day and now the evening uh, where this nor'easter storm that has been coming up the, um, uh, the coast um, has uh, actually drenching Greenwich and the surrounding area right now. Uh, whatever the case may be, I hope that all of you are, or have been rather spared, uh, any flooding and uh, what have you. But I decided to record this particular segment, um, and and I think you're going to understand this, uh, because I'm going to talk about ghost stories. <laughs> it's the perfect night for talking about ghost stories. Now, we have somebody who used to be with Greenwich Library, and I think that many of you will remember him. His name was Carl White. Carl White, for many years, was the local history librarian at the main branch of the Greenwich Library. And one of the things that Carl was really fantastic at doing was that he maintained a local history blog site. Many of his entries, if not all of them, are still there on the Greenwich Library website. You can access it there. And I was going through some of these, and lo and behold, here's one entitled Ghost Stories of Greenwich by Carl White, local history librarian. Well, isn't that a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful surprise? And it's dated October 28th, 2015. And uh, in the process of preparing for this uh, special Halloween podcast, I thought that I would share this with you. Now, first of all, before we get started, Carl has a note. It says here, and, and I will read everything to you verbatim. He says, quote, this article was written primarily for entertainment purposes. There is no way to verify this data. It's presented in the spirit of Halloween and is based on urban legend, quote unquote. Furthermore, I've embellished them to make them more interesting. Okay. 
I guess you could consider them fiction. Many years ago, I remember seeing an article in the Greenwich Time about Halloween legends in town. Since Halloween is now upon us, I decided to research some of these local tales. I was surprised to find so much information. Here I present a few of the ghostly tales. Again, this is by Carl White, the now retired local history librarian at Greenwich Library. So with that said, here we go. As the story goes, there was an Irish girl, an immigrant, who worked in a mansion in Belhaven in the late 1800s. She met and fell in love with a piper. He worked as a servant in another Belhaven residence and loved to serenade people with his flute, especially his love interest. They spent a lot of time together in the area near the Bruce Mansion. The two were very much in love and planned to marry. However, the man mysteriously disappeared and was never to be seen again. The girl was heartbroken and became very homesick. She decided to return to her family in Ireland, so she booked passage on a ship out of New York and returned to her native homeland. Unfortunately, she contracted consumption, tuberculosis, and died. Years later, early 1900s, people began reporting that they had spotted two ghostly apparitions outside what is now the Bruce Museum. A man would be playing a small flute for a young girl who listened very attentively. On occasion, an evil voice would be heard, beckoning the two to come into the mansion to play the flute and sing. But the couple refused to go inside because they said they knew they would never be able to come out. They would then suddenly disappear into thin air. In 1996, a young girl claims she was driving through Bruce Park one night when suddenly a line of approximately 10 cars cut her off. She had to slam on her brakes to avoid a collision. Several passengers appeared to have a terrified look on their faces as they looked back into the dark woods. She also tried to look in that general direction, but spotted nothing. Once all the traffic had gone, she continued on her way. And so it happened the next day. The young lady pulled into a gas station to fill up her car. When she went in to the station to pay for her gas, she overheard several men talking about an incident in Bruce Park during the previous night. Several teenagers were drinking beer and raising cane in one of the park's picnic areas. When they became very rowdy, a ghostly ghost suddenly appeared. The body was that of a woman, but the head was a collection of snakes which twisted and hissed at the teenagers. Needless to say, the teens jumped in their cars and fled the scene. The girl makes a point to avoid Bruce Park when she drives at night. Local author Anya Seaton, who wrote The Winthrop, the Winthrop Woman and other historic novels, was a strong believer in ghosts. She swore there was a ghost of a slave girl living in an old wash house on the Bush Holly property. As many people know, 
The owners of the inn had slaves living in the attic. These men and women were servants and kitchen help. Living in such tight quarters, they could very easily contract any of a number of diseases. It's very possible that the young girl died having living at Bush Holly. Anya even reported that the apparition of the young child would scream from time to time. Perhaps there was some truth to the story. One of the most popular and historical hotels in Greenwich is the Homestead Inn of Belhaven. Indians and settlers first used the land for horse pasture and farmland. It's situated on land purchased by the Bede family in 1799. Over the years, it was passed down from generation to generation. A circular summer house was built and became an inn and restaurant for travelers and summer guests. One of the attractions of the inn was a ship's figurehead, which was located on the porch. It had rosy cheeks, black eyes, and a flowing white robe over a hoop skirt. Originally, this was mounted on the bow of the Lady Lancaster, or Lancashire, sorry about that. A captain who lived next door to the inn had carved the piece in 1830. It had been removed from the ship for maintenance one time before the ship set sail. Eerily, the ship subsequently sank and the figurehead had no home, so it was given to the Mead family, who placed it on the front porch. Over the years, there were reports of strange noises by guests who stayed at the inn. One guest claimed she heard unexplained footsteps in the second-floor bride's room. It sounded like someone was pacing all night long. In another bedroom, the groom's room, a woman claims she saw the figure of a ghostly woman dressed in an old-fashioned white dress. The woman appeared to be looking out the window as if waiting for a sailor to return. Coincidentally, the figurehead was directly below this window. Perhaps it's the ghostly figure of a woman waiting for the return of someone from the Lady Lancashire. Another story involves a woman who was walking into a local church one Sunday morning. The young girl is met in the lobby by a man who asks her if she is all right. Although she finds this to be a strange question, she says she is all right and continues into the sanctuary. Just as she is going to sit in a pew, a man touches her on the shoulder and asks her again if she is all right. She again states that she's fine. The man disappeared and she didn't see him anymore. That night, she is looking through her deceased grandmother's photo album. The young girl is startled to see the image of a man who is wearing the same clothes as the man who talked to her in the church. She asks her mother who the man is in the picture. Her mother explains that this is her grandmother's husband, her grandfather that she had never met. He had met an untimely death right around the time that the girl was born. A horse and buggy had accidentally struck him while he was crossing the street. His spirit was apparently attempting to make contact from the spirit world. A family in Kaskab, which will remain anonymous, 
experienced a strange occurrence several years ago. One night, a young boy woke up from a sound sleep in his bedroom on the second floor. He was screaming and crying. The boy was all scratched up and was shaking like a leaf, as if he had seen a ghost. He claimed a man had come into his room and was trying to drag him somewhere. The man kept repeating the words, Johnson Mady. Furthermore, the man's face appeared to be on fire. There's also the story of a girl in Riversville who experienced contact with a ghostly spirit in the 1990s. She decided to take a shortcut through some woods near the intersection of Riversville Road and John Street. It was dusk, and there were many piles of leaves on the ground. As she walked uphill on a curving trail, she heard the sound of leaves rustling behind her as if someone was following. When she stopped, it stopped. When she walked, it walked. So she decided to stop suddenly. The leaves rustled about 50 feet behind her until it suddenly stopped. She started to walk again, then heard something or someone stop. This time she stopped and cried out, Who's there? The rustling started again, and it seemed as if someone had come within 10 feet of her. She screamed and ran up the hill. It felt as though something was very close to her. The young lady ran frightened all the way home. She never walked in those woods at dusk ever again. Happy Halloween, everybody. And again, that is from Carl White, the retired local history librarian of the Greenwich Library. Oh my goodness, my friends, here's a scary thought for you. Are you ready? Election Day is coming this coming Tuesday. <laughs> ah, your vote is your voice. And you know what? I know you may not believe this, but it's true. But integrity counts. It really does. Now, voting is your right. It's your opportunity to make your voice heard. Voting is what keeps us free and engaged. Voting is your opportunity to create change and build for a brighter future. The choice is yours. Now is the time. Uh, get to the polls and do your part this coming Tuesday. My friends, this has been a public service announcement, and I want to thank you for your cooperation and for going out and voting. And this comes from all of us here at the Greenwich A Town for All Season Show podcast. <laughs> The year was 1905, and boy, were the Greenwich police kept busy that Halloween. <laughs> anyway, I have a story that I found. It's dated November 4th, 1905, published in the Greenwich Graphic, and it is headlined, Boy Pranks Halloween. Trolley track soaped, a dump cart about started on a rampage, arrests made and fines imposed. Oh, dear, oh my. Well, I got to tell you that, um, you know, a little bit of mischief, um, you know, both innocent and not so innocent um, is uh, something that is uh, synonymous with um, Halloween. And um, it, it goes back a long way. So I have this story that I'd like to share with you. So uh, sit back, relax and follow along. The story goes as follows. The innocent mischievousness 
of boys on Halloween narrowly escaped causing serious damage and perhaps loss of life in one case, but for the intervention of the police would have caused a serious wreck. The first case was when a dozen or more of young men and boys greased the trolley track on the hill at Chickahominy. A well-laden car from Portchester started to slide down the hill, and it looked for a moment as if it would be dashed to pieces at the foot of the incline. Fortunately, the motorman discovered what was the matter and put on brake and sifted quantities of sand on the track so that he was finally able to regain control of the car. The second case was that of some 15 or 20 young fellows who confiscated a dump cart which had been in use near the new Brunswick School building, pulled it to the head of Greenwich Avenue and were on the point of starting it on a mad career down the avenue. The police said that the boys had timed the start of the vehicle so that it would have met an, un an upcoming trolley car near the foot of the hill. When one remembers the grade all along the avenue and recollects the speed at which a heavy dump cart would travel along the tracks, it will be easily realized what the result of this practical joke would have been. Officer Andrew Talbot, however, discovered what was being done and saved many people from serious injury and perhaps death by putting a stop to the boy's joke. On Thursday afternoon, Harold Willoughby, John Marks, John Lally, Joseph Murphy, George Ray, James Duran, Thomas Hamilton, Samuel Lally, Edward Shute, and Frank Merritt appeared before Judge Tierney in the borough court, charged with hindering the operation of the railroad and with endangering the lives of the many people on the car. John Lally and Thomas Hamilton were both over 21 years of age. They pleaded guilty to the charge. The other boys ranging in age from 16 to 20 years. Superintendent Golden of this division of the trolley road was called to the stand and explained the danger of the joke which the boys had played. He said that the hill on which the track which had been greased was considered one of the most dangerous on the line, that at the foot of the hill, where the car would have been most likely to leave the track, there was a stone wall against which it would have been dashed to pieces. Just below was a reverse curve, where the car might have been thrown from the track had it passed the other danger point. Ernest Hart, the motorman, told the court that he had discovered the soap on the rails just in time, had turned all the sand possible on then, and had reversed the power. Even then, it was some time before he could gain control of his car. Had the car been without sand, the situation would have been serious indeed. Several of the boys went on the stand and testified, but about the only thing which their testimony would be likely to establish was that all of them were blind, for each said that he saw several other boys within a distance of 10 or 20 feet greasing the track with soap, but in each case the boy testifying claimed that he was unable to recognize any of the others. In summing up the case, Judge Tierney said that the fact that the offense had been committed on Halloween was no excuse for imperiling the lives of people on the cars, and that some, at least, of the young men 
had attained the age when they should be able to discriminate between harmless mischief and an exploit which might end in the loss of life. He fined Thomas Hamilton, Samuel Lally, and Harold Willoughby $25 each, and George Ray, John Marks, Joseph Murphy, and John Lally $10 each. James Duran, who had spent two days in the lockup, was allowed to go free because of his imprisonment, and Edward Shute and Frank Merritt were acquitted. Henry Hamilton, father of Thomas Hamilton, had the case appealed. The fines of the others were paid, and they departed with a little clear idea of the real meaning of fun than they had possessed before. The boys who tried to start the wagon down Greenwich Avenue were not arrested. The following is a letter to the editor of the Greenwich News and Graphic. It was published in the 3rd of November 1931 edition of that news publication here in Greenwich. And um, it is signed uh, only with a first name, Marco, and it addresses the issue of uh, what is called in the letter Halloween rowdyism. Okay, let me read this to you. Halloween, as I remember, and used to celebrate it as a small boy, was an evening of mystery and hilarious excitement. For years before that night, it was my pleasure to look forward, in anticipation, to the marshmallow roast, the bobbing for apples, and the harmless prank of ringing my neighbor's doorbells, dashing away before they came to see who it was. Days in advance, I would work patiently, carving out a pumpkin in which to set a candle, lighting up the horrible grinning mouth and socketless eyes. This work of art would be set on the gatepost to frighten all passers-by. At least I imagined it as doing so. thus. No matter whether it actually did or not, this mild form of amusement lent a spirit of colorful festivity to the occasion. But most of all, it did no harm. Perhaps on some Halloween nights, my friends and I would do some mischievous pranks. We might even have gone as far as to move someone's porch furniture to a distance of a hundred yards onto their front lawn. Perhaps we did other things equally as bad, but at no time did it ever occur to us to do any real damage or to do any one personal injury. As I think back now and remember the good times we youngsters used to have on Halloween night, and in my case, that is not so very many years ago, it is my one regret that the children of that age today are denied that pleasure. For can they make pumpkin jack-o'-lanterns today? No. For if they do, let it be set on the gatepost to supposedly frighten away others, when it is smashed to bits by a gang of hoodlums, let them go out in the early hours of the evening on a harmless visit to their neighbors' front doors, front doorbells, and they are frightened and attacked by a group of older ruffians. These gangs of self-styled tough young boys who roam the streets on Halloween night only for the purpose and intent of bullying and frightening younger children do they represent the spirit of gaiety intended for this occasion? I opened my door this evening to a little girl. She was in tears, because a group of boys had set upon her and snatched the mask from her face. 
Her little companion, she told me, had become frightened and run away. Their mischief that evening had been ringing doorbells, the mischief of those cowards who had molested her, for only cowards would frighten a little girl, was certainly to be of a far more serious nature before the night was over. Their Halloween pranks would consist of smashing streetlights, breaking milk bottles in the streets, heaving tomatoes through people's doorways, ripping up fences, setting fires, and generally attempting to do as much damage as possible to public and private property, not to mention the disturbance caused by their noise and rowdyism. Yes, let's have Halloween. Let's have the kind of Halloween that the youngsters can enjoy. Let them ring doorbells. Let them set their jack-o'-lanterns on their gateposts. Let them put on their costumes and have their parties. Mild amusements like this do do no one any harm. The youngsters have a good time, and they should be allowed to enjoy it. The evening is not one for destruction, hunters. It is not one for half-grown boys to wage war on each other. It is not an evening for bullies and ruffians. I know that the police department is making a big effort to stop this present form of Halloween celebration. Let them go still further. Have them chase these thrill-seekers off the streets. They wouldn't be allowed there any other night of the year. If some of these amusement makers spent the night in jail, they might find it convenient to remain indoors on next Halloween and allow those for whom it was intended to enjoy it. You know, once upon a time in the mid to late 1980s and even into the early 1990s, I was a local history columnist at Greenwich Times. Some of you may have uh, remembered reading my various historical columns about the history of the town. There's one in particular that uh, is a favorite of mine, and it's, uh, of course, Halloween themed. Uh, and uh, I'd like to uh, to share this with you once again. By the way, do you know that I have a lot of my writings uh, from those days of the Greenwich Time on a free blog site? You can access it anytime. And let me give you the address. It's writingsofjeffreybinghammead.blogspot.com. Again, that's writingsofjeffreybinghammead.blogspot.com. And uh, this one uh, is uh, one that was published uh, in uh, early November of uh, 1986. So sit back, relax, and let me share this story with you. Right, the occasion was a rather unique Halloween party at the Bush Holly House in Strickland Road, and in those days, it was the home of notable ladies and gentlemen who had stayed during the preceding summer season at this famous historical site. Now, uh, from an autumn for an autumn evening, the Holly Inn was transformed into a haven for freaks, spirits, demons, and poltergeists. With the arrival of each guest. Here she was given a pumpkin and knife with instructions to carve the pumpkin into the features of a face resembling one of the other celebrants. Now, as one could imagine, with so many sculptors, artists, and portrait painters present, the faces on the pumpkins surely were realistic and works of art in themselves, as the Holly Inn was a favorite artist colony in those distant days. In no time at all, the autumn sun dipped low, in the western horizon, yielding to the hours of darkness. With the window shades down, 
the many fireplaces that dot the interior of the Holly Inn were kindled with inviting blazing fires. The rooms were decorated with the carved grotesque jack-o'-lantern sculpted by those in attendance, with illuminated faces flickering with ghoulish laughter as evening set in. At 6.30, a gong reverberated throughout the halls. The time to dress for dinner in costume arrived, and the many guests clambered to the nearest dressing room available. The costume worn by each guest was kept in strictest confidence until the dinner hour. To say the least, the costumes worn that night bordered on the eccentric. The guest list that night read like a who's who of artists and Holly Inn patrons. Mrs. Edward Holly came as a beautiful, reportedly Circassian lady, with artist Elmer McRae as a bearded lady, with his wife as a, quote, wild woman of Borneo. Unquote. Miss A. Barlow and Miss Louise Cameron Walter came as Siamese twins, with Miss Aunt Mary Annabel Fenton as a serpent dancer, Miss Theodosia de Rimmer Hawley as a Japanese, quote, giantess, unquote, Miss Catherine McCaff Moody as a Bulgarian princess, Mr. H.F. Taylor as the, quote, king of the cannibal islands, unquote, Mr. George Gilman Hall, as a Chinese warrior, Mrs. Kate Jordan Vermeil as a vampire, plus many others. The infamous gong chimed once again at 7.30, alerting the trick-or-treaters to organize in the upper hall for a parade which would, its, which would wind itself down the south staircase and through the rooms and veranda below to the dining room. The procession was led by Mr. Holly, owner and proprietor of the Holly Inn, who carried a gramophone playing the brass band version of Ludwig von Beethoven's Turkish Patrol March. Later, the costumed guests played at games of hide-and-seek, blind man's bluff, and happy is the miller. As the clock struck midnight, the bewitching hour began. The celebrants descended into the cellar where they bobbed for apples, consulted the magic mirror, and engaged in the mystical art of palm reading and also forecasted fate and fortune through tarot cards. At long last, the evening came to a close as hideous, ghoulish ghost stories were told, sending many a chill up and down the spines of those present who listened squeamishly in the eerie, flickering lights of the Holly Inn cellar. Support is made possible by... An award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations 
of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President at Jeffrey Matthews Financial Group, whose financial advisors are knowledgeable in the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. Learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor's Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. That's 203-485-7595. Do you mind if I ask you a question? 
My question is this. What makes Halloween fun? Now, for generations, it's been dressing up and showing off our costumes, carving pumpkins, trick-or-treating, eating candy, and more. People are especially creative this season. We can do all these things and more safely. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, the host of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. I want everyone, young and young at heart alike, to enjoy Halloween. Here's some trick-or-treat safety tips that I'd like to share with you. Now, to the adults out there, I've got a little task for you. Please, please supervise the young children. Motorists, you're out there on the roads, please slow down. Exercise a little more caution. Watch out for children since it will be dark outside. Everyone, please walk on sidewalks and crosswalks. And when you do use those crosswalks, don't forget to look both ways. Walk in groups. Be out there with family and friends. It's a lot more fun that way. Make sure your mobile phone is fully charged if you have one. Carry flashlights or glow sticks. You'll find those to be very handy. Stop at homes that are well lit. To everyone who owns a dog, cat, or some other pet, please secure your pets. Keep them on leashes if you, are out, if you are out with them. Never enter a stranger's home. Wear light-colored costumes or use reflective tape. Make sure candy wrappers are sealed. My friends, let's look out for each other. I wish you to have a happy and haunted Halloween. May your jack-o'-lanterns burn bright, and may you share its warmth with family and friends. This has been a public service announcement. Thank you for your cooperation and support from all of us with the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast. My friends, for generations, Halloween celebrations have been held in various settings. We, we've talked, of course, about uh, Bushali House and, and other uh, such places. Uh, but um, the public was also very enthusiastic about attending Halloween celebrations in uh, various places. Um, I have one, for example, that was held 100 years ago. Uh, this uh, this week, in fact, um, it was the Young Women's Club of the First Presbyterian Church. Uh, they gave a Halloween social in the community house, and that would have been the um, previous Saturday evening. Um, and according to the uh, press uh, coverage, which was in the uh, Greenwich News and Graphic, the uh, the event was very, very well attended by, quote, the young folks and proved to be a most enjoyable affair. Halloween games were played, and during the evening, vocal solos were rendered by Fred Stork, Baritone, and others. So that was really nice. But you know what? There was another place of uh, very historic significance to... um uh, to us where Halloween celebrations were held. And that would have been, of course, the one and only Greenwich YMCA building. Um, and before I share those with you, I thought that I would uh, give you a little bit of information about that building. Of course, if you uh, live here in town or if you've visited any time um, uh, recently, you've you've had to have passed by it. It's on the southeast corner of East Putnam Avenue and Mason Street. Very, very uh, very prominently uh, situated. Um, there is a central rotunda from which um, fourth-story rectangular wings extend from it. 
The rotunda is topped by a shallow dome and an octagonal cupola. The Doric columns, uh, as you have probably seen, uh, are quite remarkable. Now, the, the building was designed, um, interestingly enough, by M.L. and H.G. Amory. And if you've never heard of them, it's because even in those days, they were virtual, uh, two virtually unknown architects from New York City. The, uh, the building was constructed in the year 1916. It was a gift to the town and people of Greenwich by Mrs. Rebecca Witherell. Now, if that name Witherell rings a bell with you, it should. Um, and the reason why is because it was given to the town in memory uh, of her late husband at the time, and that would have been Nathaniel Witherell. Now, Nathaniel Witherell, he was a uh, New York shipping magnate, and he made his mark on um, Greenwich history. Uh, he was a real estate developer, uh, among other things. Um, and he was very much responsible for developing residential parks uh, such as Ruck Ridge, uh, which is uh, off of uh, Lake Avenue. Um, and uh, also with Robert Bruce and Thomas Mayo, he was one of the developers of the uh, Belhaven uh, section of uh, town, and there were other residential parks. Uh, Edgewood Park was another one that uh, that he was responsible for. So um, so there you go. Now, uh, of course, the, the, the building is quite large, and it would have had to been because of the numbers of people that uh, were in attendance at these events. So let me just get my notes out here and um, and share that with you. Okay, here we go. Let's see. Dun, 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 dun. Ah, yes, here we go. All right, let's see. All right, then this was in 1924. My source on this is the Greenwich News and Graphic, uh, the um, November 7, 1924 edition. This was on the first page. Um, and uh, here is what they uh, they had to say. Big success attended by over 2,000 persons. That's a lot of people, even for a building like the, um, uh, the YMCA building on East Putnam Avenue. The hundreds in attendance at the third annual Halloween party of the YWCA and YMCA last Friday evening unanimously voted the affair a complete success. There were over 2,000 present and over 600 used the dance floor in the gymnasium. The building was attractively decorated throughout in games, contests, and activities of all sort, all different sorts enjoyed the attention of all at the same time in different portions of the building. In the men's lobby, there were five booths containing the following games. And I'm not familiar with these games. Uh, let me just interrupt here. So uh, we'll have to, maybe you could chime in and, and write to me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com and you can share with me some of the details of these of these games, I've, I, you know, well, all right, let me just list them for you. Ringing the cat's tails. I don't know what that is, but that's what the news says. Pop gun shooting at wooden soldiers. Throwing a rubber ball at noisemakers. Ring the cane stand and tossing rubber balls into pumpkins. I've never done any of those things, at least not that I know of anyway, but there you go. All right. The booths were, according to the story, were prettily decorated and created much comment. In the main floor round room, 12 signs were placed on a wire instructing those in attendance where the activities could be found. The boys' lobby was used for small games under the leadership of Miss Alice E. Bengston physical director of the YWCA, and Lewis H. Schaefer. He was the physical director of the YMCA. And the boys' ping-pong room was used as a refreshment room where literally thousands of donuts, cakes, apples were given away, and coffee and cider served. The refreshment stand under the able leadership of Miss Luna Adams. All right. 
The feature of the entertainment was the dance, which was held in the gymnasium and was in charge of William L. Colgrove and his efficient committee. The gymnasium was beautifully decorated for the occasion. Among the many features were the straw voting and guessing tests. The straw vote was overwhelmingly in favor of President Coolidge. There you go. The guessing contest of the number of kernels on an ear of corn was a tie between J.D. Hannon of Ralph E. Bush Brush's office and Miss Florence Barber of 63 Locust Street. I hope you're ready for this. Both guessing the actual number of kernels on the ear. This is an ear of corn. We're all familiar with those, which numbered 580. Now, before I go on, let me ask you, how many of you have actually stopped and taken an ear of corn in your hand. In fact, I'll challenge you to do this if you're bored at any time, um, and literally count the number of kernels <laughs> on the ear of corn. Uh, I don't know if people in the 21st century would have the, um, uh, the patience to do that. You can give it a shot. Let me know how it goes. All right, and <laughs> continuing along, in the pumpkin guessing contest, Miss uh, since Shea Olsen of Sherwood Place guessed the closest to the actual number of seeds in the pumpkin, that's another one you could try, the number of seeds being 506, and Miss Olsen's guess was 503. Hundreds of guesses were made in both of these contests, and this feature created much interest in the affair. Well, I'll bet it did. But, you know, give give that a shot sometime. I mean, go out uh, go out to the store. I don't know, pick your, your vegetable store and get yourself an ear of corn, and um, uh, or, or if you have children, make them do it, or grandchildren. I don't know. And the number of seeds uh, in a pumpkin. I, I mean, I, I have no idea, but that would be interesting. So again, that was how the um, uh, Halloween was uh, celebrated at the YMCA um, in 1924. Now, here's news of another Halloween gathering. This one is dated in 1935. And again, my source on this is the November 1st, 1935 edition of the Daily News graphic of, um, of Greenwich. This was on the first page. Uh, the headline read, um, Youngsters Jam Y Gymnasium on Halloween. Joe Lorraine entertains 400 tiny folk with magic and wit. Rain Stops March. I, I have to explain that there used to be an annual parade, apparently. Um, and, well, you'll find out more about that. An annual party produces mirth, cuts holiday mischief actions. Well, that's always good. All right. Although, although Rain called off the proposed uh, street parade from Connecticut uh, Amory, Armory to the Young Men's Christian Association, children and parents estimated at 1,600 crowded the Y building last night for the annual Children's Halloween Carnival. It was one of the biggest nights on record here, uh, officials indicated today. While Joe Lorraine entertained 400 smallest children with his acts of magic and monologue wit in the auditorium, 700 older boys and girls gathered in the gymnasium to compete in a variety of appropriate games, including the biting of donuts and apples on strings, balloon blowing, pie eating, and soda pop drinking. Without a suggestion of undue hurry, but with an expedition which made the competition only the more intriguing, the big, com the big committee gave the children their fun and had the building cleared and dignified once more before 10 o'clock. 
All right, a holdover from the adults' party at the Y Wednesday evening. Mary Casey of Cowscob was awarded 12 Pickwick Theater tickets today as winner of a contest which offered competitors the opportunity of guessing how long a candle lighted at 7 o'clock Wednesday evening would burn. <laughs> the committee announced today that the candle, which burned until after 2.30 o'clock yesterday afternoon, was timed at 19 hours 38 minutes and 14 seconds as compared to Miss Casey's guess, which was 19 hours, 40 minutes and 10 seconds. Imagine trying to do that, everybody. Well, there you go. All right. The, the wise <laughs> continuing along the wise annual parties for children have uh, have the full cooperation and support of the Greenwich Police Department. That's always good, which believes the holidays probably the most effective means of curtailing mischief and too frequently disastrous juvenile activity in the Halloween season. Among smaller children who enjoyed movies, in addition to Joe Lorraine's talents, Miss Anna Elizabeth Pine of 12 Grig Street, dressed as Bo Peep, won first prize for the most attractive girl's costume. Thomas Chicanus, Bruce Park Avenue, as a tramp, received a first prize among the boys. In the older group, which also enjoyed movies in the gym, a peasant costume on Miss Dorothy Marks was adjudged the prettiest among the girls, and Mexican dress on Joseph C. Bailey Jr. among the boys. Joseph C. Bailey Sr., an officer of the Greenwich Lions Club, brought the Mexican costume when he returned from a trip as delicate to an international Lions convention at Mexico City last summer. So there you go. Let's see. Oh, oh, wait a minute. There's more here. All right. Um, let's see. Marguerite, Marguerite Taylor, uh, Pemberwick, and Harry Emerson of Coscob, clad in nondescript but extremely colorful garments, took first prizes offered the funniest costumes among the older children. Probably the most amusing spectacle of the evening came during the donut pie-eating and soda-drinking contests with judges and guests enjoying the antics as the contestants did their stuff from an especially erected platform. William Besido, Valley Road, Coscob, and Carmela Fuscaldo. Coscob won first and second places in the donut on a string tests. Robert Adams, Davis Avenue, finished first in both pie-eating and soda-drinking trials, with Frank Siciliano and Ted Konopka second, Ralph Castronovo, Bruce Park Avenue, and Robert Anderson, Field Point Road, took first and second honors in balloon-blowing, and Orlando Ferraro of Cuscob and Amelia Lanzarone, Davis Avenue, were first and second in the traditional pie-on-a-string contest. Frank Mandis of Hamilton Avenue tied Robert Adams' best efforts in the soda-drinking competition. Each child received a surprise refreshment bag containing an apple donut package of lifesavers, lollipops, chocolate bar, butterscotch roll, popcorn, peanuts, and a glass of cider. Well, how about that, everybody? That's how they celebrated uh, Halloween at the uh, at the YMCA building in November, uh, or excuse me, October rather of of 1935. May I let you in on a secret? In my not so humble opinion, nothing beats the comfort and soothing qualities of a good hot cup of coffee in a historical setting. The Coffee for Good Cafe is located in the stone 1858 Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church of Greenwich. 
My friends, this is not your ordinary high-end retail coffee shop. Coffee for Good is a new, unique, nonprofit partnership with the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Coffee for Good's authentically historical, legendary ambiance will make you want to sip and stay for hours. Believe me, I'm there. (laughs) Enjoy exquisite indoor and outdoor dining. The service is attentive and friendly. And did I mention, ready for this, that the parking is free? Hey, just saying. Oh, and let me throw this into this free Wi-Fi. Need a place to study, work, read, meet up with friends, or just relax? Make Coffee for Good your destination. It's certainly one of mine. 48 Maple Avenue in the 1858 Stone Solomon Mead House. Open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Saturday, closed Sunday. Learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that's coffeeforgood.org. The Greenwich Historical Society is pleased to mark the debut of the John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonné with an illustrated virtual talk by Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., tracing John Henry Twachman's road to Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899 and created the Impressionist works for which he is best known. Dr. Peters will chart Twachman's artistic career through focus on a few key works, from his early days in Cincinnati to European study and travel to New York City and finally to Greenwich, Connecticut. Following the lecture, Dr. Peters will be joined by Greenwich Historical Society Curator of Exhibitions and Collections, Maggie Dummick, for a discussion about Twachman's continued legacy and the rich information available to researchers and art lovers in the John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonné. This virtual event is being held in celebration of the public launch of the John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonné, a collaboration between Dr. Peters and the Greenwich Historical Society. The John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonné is a free digital resource offering detailed records of Twachman's life, exhibitions, and other material, including correspondence and entries for every known artwork by the artist. It is available at www.jhtachtman.org. That's jhtwachman.org. Lisa N. Peters, PhD, is an independent art historian and curator and the author of the John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonné. She is also the curator of the upcoming exhibition of the Greenwich Historical Society Life and Art, The Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman, and the author of its accompanying catalog. Her previous publications on Twachman include John Henry Twachman, An American Impressionist, that was with the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. She has published many other articles and exhibition catalogs on topics in American art. Mark your calendar, my friends, for November 18, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Registration is required. Learn more and register on the web at GreenwichHistory.org. Again, that's GreenwichHistory.org. Or you can call 203-869-6899. Again, that's area code 203-869-6899. For over a century, the Bush Holly House and grounds of the Greenwich Historical Society have nurtured creativity, design, and artful living. 
Mark your calendar for November 18 for the next Create in the Barn workshop, the Thanksgiving Tablescape. This intimate hands-on workshop with cocktails and camaraderie fosters community connection. Presented with local realtor Karen McKenna, the Greenwich Historical Society is pleased to offer this special evening night out hosted in its historic barn. Now, registration is required. 6.30 to 8 p.m. on November 18 at 47 Strickland Road in Cascob. You can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Again, that's Greenwich History Org or call 203-869-6899. <laughs> All right, one of the most significantly historical cemeteries in the town of Greenwich is located next to the Second Congregational Church on East Putnam Avenue. Um, It's located at an exceptionally attractive site off of the north side of East Putnam Avenue at the intersection with the Millbank Avenue. Um, It's uh, known, uh, in in some publications, it's known as the Second Congregational Church Cemetery, but in fact, the Second Congregational Church does not own or run that cemetery. Um, Actually, the the Second Church is in charge of Union Cemetery, which some of you have probably passed by on Millbank Avenue, and also if you have children that you've dropped off at uh, Julian Curtis School, you've probably driven by it or walked by it on uh, many occasions. But anyway, back to the um, to this particular cemetery at the um, at the top of uh, of the hill. Now, um, it's known as the New Burial Grounds Association uh, Cemetery, um, and that is because New Burial Grounds Association is probably one of Connecticut's oldest or earliest independent cemetery associations that was ever created. Um, I'll have a little bit more about that in, um, in just a moment. Now, of course, in order to find the, um, uh, this particular cemetery, it's probably uh, best to look for the 212-foot-tall stone spire of the Second Congregational Church. You can't miss it. It is actually the tallest structure in, um, in town. Uh, and, um, and so I, I should mention, in fact, there's a plaque on the church that uh, says this, that in 1789, George Washington viewed the surrounding area from the summit of, um, of the hill, uh, approximately where the, uh, the church is uh, located today. And he later wrote in, um, in his journal, um, he said, quote, the superb landscape, which is to be seen from the meeting house is a rich regalia. Uh, by the way, churches um, in the congregational tradition were known as meeting houses. They were not necessarily known as churches. Um, and uh, and so there you go. And you can imagine if you were standing there that at one time when the trees were gone and what have you, you could actually literally see all the way down, uh, almost unobstructed, uh, to Long Island Sound and even Long Island, um, you know, beyond. It must have been quite um, an extraordinary sight uh, to, uh, to see. Now, um, again, I mentioned that many people have assumed that this cemetery um, uh, is under the direct jurisdiction of the church. But in fact, the New Burial Grounds Association was created in July of 1833 as an independent uh, cemeterial burial ground organization. The original proprietors of the association purchased the one and a half acres of land from Solomon Mead, um, and that was for $500. The plots were sold to the public, and by the way, this is interesting, without any regard for religious affiliation. Um, another $440 was invested for necessary improvements to, um, uh, to the property, and that included uh, the reconditioning of the surrounding stone, stone walls that, of course, um, are still there. 
The tract of land uh, at one time was owned by a man by the name of Angel Houston. Um, and uh, Mr. Houston was one of the original proprietors of the town of Greenwich. At the time of the purchase for the burial ground, no buildings, including Mr. Houston's homestead, were um, uh, were situated there. Um, another thing that uh, well, I have a number of facts I'd like to uh, to, uh, to share with you because I consider this to be one of the uh, more interesting of the um, uh, of the historic cemeteries um, in town. Now, the stone memorials viewed in this cemetery they do vary from you know humble. Uh, markers to a handsome, very, very well-preserved and elaborately carved monuments, um, much of which, most of which, by the way, are, are very well-preserved. Now, there are a few brownstone gravestones. You'll see those there. Then what they do is that they predate the creation of the cemetery. They were transferred from other sites many years ago. Um, believe it or not, there used to be a, um, a cemetery, a public, public one, located um, at the location where Temple Shalom on East Putnam Avenue is um, uh, today. Uh, the majority of the stones, by the way, in the New Burial Grounds Association Cemetery are carved from marble and granite. Um, uh, a number of fine examples of 19th century mortuary, mortuary gravestone art can be viewed here. So if you, and I would invite you to do this, it's very, very easy to, um, uh, to walk over and to wander around the, um, uh, the gravestones. Um, a number of, uh, of these uh, fine examples uh, include um, carved weeping willow trees. Now, a lot of people don't know it. Weeping willow trees are not indigenous to North America. They were originally brought to North America uh, from China. Um, and uh, the weeping willow trees, they embodied um, or symbolized uh, nature's lament, of course, you know, drooping uh, leaves or, or, or branches rather would convey that. Um, they are found on the gravestones of uh, such individuals as Whitman Sackett, um, who died in 1868, Captain Daniel Merritt, who died in 1849, a woman by the name of Prudence Mead. She also died in 1849, and there are some, uh, some others. Now, some stones uh, even feature uh, twin willow trees. Those are evocative of the custom of planting marriage trees upon the exchange of nuptials by, nuptials by couples. The elaborately carved monument commemorating the memory of Sophia, the, um, uh, the only daughter of Isaac and, and Julia uh, Peck, she died in 1861, features a very rare example uh, in Greenwich of a winged hourglass. So picture an hourglass with angel-like wings going off um, either side that uh, uh, many scholars say that that symbolizes the, the flight of time. Um, uh, the flowers adorning the gravestone of Caleb Houston. He was a child who died in 1857, and a few other markers are embellished with Masonic symbols featuring a crossed compass and square on an open book, that open book being uh, the Holy Bible. The, uh, the gravestone of Civil War soldier El Nathan Houston, who died uh, in battle uh, during that, uh, that war, features, uh, I think, some of the finest illustrations of uh, military motifs on uh, any of the gravestones in, um, in the town that, um, that I have seen. Now, the, um, the New Borough Grounds uh, Association Cemetery also contains the final resting places of many who are famous in various areas of, um, of Greenwich, Connecticut history. One of them, um, a name that I know very well, is Dr. Darius Mead. He died in 1864. Um, he was the founder uh, or led the, uh, the founding of Greenwich Academy. 
um, a uh, girls' school that uh, that is very well known, of course, in Greenwich. By the way, and back in those days, it was actually a co-ed school. Um, now, Dr. Darius Mead, he studied medicine in Philadelphia. He eventually returned to Greenwich. He married Lydia, the daughter of Dr. Elisha Belcher. Um, by the way, the Belchers had a beautiful home um, up and uh, up in Round Hill, not far uh, north and west of the um, of the Round Hill store. The, the The house is still there, uh, by the way. Nearby is the grave of Dr. Mead's son-in-law, a man by the name of Philander Button. Um, he is regarded as one of the most important principals of Greenwich Academy. He served for uh, 22 years. One of the distinctions that um, uh, that Mr. Button had was that when the railroad uh, came through Greenwich in um, 1848, um, he is the one who is credited as dismissing the school so that the um, students and uh, faculty and everybody could go down and watch the train, uh, you know, come into uh, to town. Indeed, uh, that is true. It was the um, uh, it was in 1848. Uh, they were there to witness the first run of the New York and New Haven Hartford uh, Railroad as the train steamed through Greenwich. Um, he was also very actively engaged in community affairs, including taking charge of recruiting men uh, for the uh, the Civil War effort. Another gentleman that um, is very well known in, um, in Greenwich history um, is Judge Frederick A. Hubbard. He contributed many historical articles and recollections of New England newspapers. He authored a book which you can find um, in the Greenwich Library, but also you can find a copy of it online. It's called Other Days in Greenwich. And it is, um, he also wrote a history of Acacia Lodge, the local Freemasons organization. He served with distinction as a judge in the um, uh, Greenwich Borough Court when it existed, no longer does, and represented the town in the General Assembly. Uh, another judge by the name of uh, George W. Brush, he served for uh, 25 years as a justice of the peace in Greenwich. And um, if you go through the uh, legal records, he presided over many important cases. Um, they say that he was so well-versed in law that during his tenure, none of his decisions were ever appealed or overturned in a higher court. Well, that's very, very flattering, if you ask me. Now, a number of military soldiers are buried in the cemetery. Uh, one very prominent uh, for me and my family is Major Daniel Merritt Mead. He was a lawyer by profession. Um, he died of typhoid fever while on sick leave after uh, the Battle of New Bern. Um, uh, Major Meade was the author of the first history of the town of Greenwich, and of course it was called the history of the town of Greenwich. It was first um, uh, published in 1857. Um, a man by the name of Sergeant Caleb Holmes was also killed in battle. Um, part of his epitaph quotes a letter he sent uh, to his mother. Let me uh, just uh, uh, get that for you. Let me see. All right, here we go. And um, it, uh, it goes... Wait a minute, where did it go? All right. Um, well, no, you know what? I, I will read that to you a little bit later on. I'm going to do something about epitaphs, uh, but um, uh, I will find that for you. It's very, very interesting. Um, Caleb, uh, Jared Finch, rather, he died in 18, 1939. He was distinctioned uh, of uh, being the first Greenwich man to sign up for duty in the Civil War effort. And he was the last Civil War veteran to, uh, to die. Um, and that was again in 1939. Amos Mead, a uh, medical doctor, MD, was a soldier in the American Revolution. He also represented uh, Greenwich in Hartford to ratify the, uh, the U.S. Constitution. Uh, several prominent ministers are uh, interred in the cemetery. Reverend Rufus C. Putney served for 37 years as pastor of the Methodist Episcopal Church uh, in, um, in Greenwich. 
Reverend Oliver Huckle. He was known as the, quote, venerable man of Greenwich clergy. Early in the 20th century, he was the pastor of the Second Congregational Church for many years. He was uh, known as the author of uh, 30 books, including The Church Tells Her Story and The Four Epochs of World Conquest. He lectured on many subjects and was a leading authority on uh, the musical dramas of Richard Wagner. Um, it was during his term that the famous stone uh, church spire was rebuilt for the first time, and the church uh, interior was also um, uh, rehabilitated, if you will, and the congregation celebrated its 225th anniversary, the church being founded in 1705. Um, Dr. Joel Lindsley, also of the Second Church, was past president of uh, Marietta College uh, in, uh, in Ohio. Other famous people from uh, the past that are interred here include members of the Holly family, long associated with the Holly Inn, that became the headquarters of the Koskob School of American Impressionism and, of course, the Greenwich Historical Society uh, today. By the way, uh, just as a note, the Bush Holly House was acquired by the Historical Society uh, in 1957. Now, Ed Edward Lyon Holly was a brother of Constant Holly McRae, and she was the last owner of the house before it was sold to the Greenwich Historical Society. Deacon Abraham Mead, he's somebody very prominent uh, in my family. Um, he was a very, very prominent potter, you know, somebody who made pottery and what have you. There's some examples of that um, in various collections, including the Greenwich Historical Society, but also the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City also has uh, some uh, samples of, uh, of his uh, works. Um, another uh, Mead character, he was a rather eccentric soul, um, I have to tell you. And this is for those of you who live in the Byram section of Greenwich. He was known as the Venerable Sage of New Lebanon. Um, his, his memorial is very prominent. His name was Milo Mead. He was a very, very eccentric bachelor um, who developed his lands in Byram into what uh, he called uh, New Lebanon. He took the name um, East Portchester, as Byram used to be called, as, as a personal insult. Um, and by the way, those of you that um, have children, or maybe you even have graduated yourself, you might have gone to New Lebanon School in that part of town. The reason why it was called New Lebanon um, is because Milo Mead gave the land uh, to the town of Greenwich for the uh, for the construction of an elementary school, but with the condition that the school in perpetuity had to be referred to as New Lebanon. So that's why New Lebanon has um, its uh, its name. Now, also, there's the family of Solomon Mead, uh, who owned the tract where the cemetery um, is today. They are interred here. His house is located um, uh, in the second mansion of the Second Congregational Church. Um, and is where um, uh, Coffee for Good and also the Breast Alliance and other nonprofits are are based um, in there. It's the Stone Mansion that was, uh, along with the church, uh, was designed by uh, Jewish architect Leopold Edlitz, um, who is not buried in the cemetery, but uh, we have to give um, that historical factoid where, of course, it is due. Um, now, I want to mention something, that from 1917 to 1919, the bell tower... Um, or, or spire of the Second Congregational Church was methodically removed as it was discovered that the, the spire was disintegrating um, and each stone marked uh, was marked properly for reassembly. Um, now, the scaffolds were supported by guy wires, and one of which was connected to the cemetery. Now, during a sudden windstorm sometime around Easter in 1918, the scaffolds collapsed into the cemetery and damaged a number of gravestones. If you were to go and visit the cemetery today and you do see some damaged gravestones, 
if you were to go up into the Aspire, I have been up there, by the way, and you look down, you can also see where the damaged stones almost uh, line up uh, together. It's very difficult to see that from the, uh, from the ground, but, uh, but there it is. Um, and so the New Burial Ground uh, Association still exists uh, today. It is in very, very, very good hands. And my friends, I can assure you, whether it's uh, on Halloween or any other time of the year, a stroll among the uh, tombstones for those in search of Greenwich's uh, history is something that I strongly recommend. So please go and check out the, the New Burial Grounds Association uh, Cemetery. Um, it is next door to the Second Congregational Church. Maybe you can even go in and get a coffee and sandwich or something over at uh, the new Coffee for Good place. Um, and who knows, you might even see me there. And if you do, well, stop and say hi and let's socialize. The profound sense of calmness sense of history and solitude found in the burying grounds and cemeteries of Greenwich, Connecticut, or any community for that matter, it's really impossible to explain in a few words. Uh, wandering among the weather-worn tombstones is a fascinating experience um, for those seeking to unlock the dim mysteries of, um, of olden times. Um, the visitor to these historic places will encounter the sullen side of our uh, cultural heritage. Now, back in the late 1980s and into the 1990s, one of the things that um, I did was that uh, I was part of a project with the Greenwich Historical Society and others to uh, clean up uh, neglected and forgotten cemeteries. One of the things that I did was I ran around and I started transcribing epitaphs. Now, what's an epitaph? Well, these are inscriptions expressing sentiments of faith, exaltation, exclamations of remembrance for the deceased, and uh, for those who carry on the, um, uh, the task of, of the living. Um, the, the subject uh, and the text of these uh, are, are quite fascinating. Uh, many of them are worn away. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to, um, uh, to read them anymore. Uh, some stones have been damaged um, and so forth. So it was uh, kind of imperative that, uh, that we go out and, um, and, uh, and, and uh, transcribe those. So I wanted to share a few of these. I could go on for, quite frankly, a very long time, but we don't have the time. We can do this another time, I suppose. I don't know. But um, anyway, the earliest known epitaph found in Greenwich is found at Tomek Cemetery. For those of you who are new to town, Tomek Cemetery in Old Greenwich is the town's oldest existing cemetery. Um, and in it, there is a brownstone memorial for a man by the name of Nathaniel Lockwood. He died on December 22nd, 1757. He was only aged 31 years um, at the time of his passing. And his epitaph goes as follows. Since life's uncertain oft come down in prime, repent nor dare presume on future time. Since mercy's boundless, let not man despair. Love, faith in Christ is saving, if sincere. Well, how about that? All right. Um, the, uh, the most famous epitaph that you find in, um, in many New England uh, cemeteries, it's found in a number of um, gravestones uh, throughout town, is this one. Um, but before I mention it, um, it includes people like Sarah Gardner in the old uh, burying ground at Koskob on the Strickland Road. Uh, that's the one with the little fence around it. Um, Sylvanus Knapp uh, is in Round Hill Cemetery. Thankful Lockwood is uh, in Tomac Cemetery. Um, there's one known as the Cherry Hill Cemetery where Nathaniel Ferris is buried and there are uh, others elsewhere. 
Um, it's interesting. Uh, this uh, combines an intriguing play on words and rhythm as well as puts forth a blunt warning on the inescapable rendezvous with death, and it goes as follows. Behold and think as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you must be prepared to die, and follow me. An admonition is recorded in Putnam Cemetery on a tombstone of Henry Richards. Um, he was the son of James and Ruth Richards of Norwalk. He died on September 28, 1800. He was only 17 years, nine months old. Quote, Youth, bear in mind that you must die and lie in the cold tomb. Make peace with God while you have time, that happiness may be your doom. Another alarm was sounded at Union Cemetery on the gravestone of Hannah Timpany, uh, and it goes as follows. There was a time that time is past, when in youth I bloomed like thee. The time will come, tis coming past, when thou shalt fade uh, like me. Now, over across town at the old burying ground uh, at Byram, um, and that includes the the lion plot on Byram Shore Road, there's the uh, tombstone of Elizabeth Bloomfield, um, and uh, it, it beckons the living reader to to face this certain engagement with mortality, and it goes as follows. Hark from the tombs a doneful sound, my ears attend the cry. Ye living, then come view the ground where you must shortly lie. Now, uh, here's an, uh, another one that I, there were these um, epitaphs out there. We call them uh, virtue epitaphs, um, where virtue and honesty, they're two themes that are, um, uh, that are uh, stated or implied. Uh, this is on the marble tombstone of Daniel Banks. This is also at the, the old burying ground at, uh, at Byram on Byram Shore Road. Um, he died on September 13th of um, 1832. Once I was a blooming youth, and always gave each man the truth, but mouth and virtue cannot save, but fit us for a peaceful grave. Oh my. Uh, so, uh, so there you go. Um, uh, the epitaph on the gravestone of Marilda Timpany on the Timpany plot. This is the small cemetery. Some of you in Costco might uh, have passed by, of course, on Bible Street. Um, it presumes the end of misery in exchange for the ease into a heavenly paradise. And uh, uh, Marilda Timpany's, uh, uh, her epitaph goes as follows. Rest in peace, thy trials ended. Hark from yon celestial sphere. Births the full angelic chorus, sister spirit, welcome here. There's another one that uh, that you will run into quite often, uh, uh, or variations of this uh, next epitaph. Um, and uh, it's a favorite epitaph that is found in cemeteries. It communicates the ineffectiveness of a doctor or a physician's intervention. An example of this um, is found in Tomek Cemetery in Old Greenwich on the tombstone for Nancy Lockwood. She died on October 17th, uh, year 1835. Afflictions sore a long time she bore. Physicians aimed was vain. To God was pleased to give her ease and free her from her pain. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, so there you go. I hate to say it, but there were many women and, um, it, it's, it's a sad thing to, uh, to admit, but, 
the the thing is that there were many women, and you will run into this, and even children who died um, uh, very young. In many cases, women child uh, in the course of childbirth, and many children uh, died at very very young ages. Um, what was called consumption, or what we call today tuberculosis, was a very very big killer uh, back in, um, in in those days. Um, I, I want to uh, mention that we do have some military epitaphs um, dedicated to the sacrifices of uh, war veterans. Um, one that comes to mind is El Nathan Houston. He's buried in the New Burial Grounds Association Cemetery. He died in the Civil War um, on David's Island on March 4th of 1864. Call him, call him not back from his home above. Call him not back to this world of care. Leave him in heaven with his Savior's love and earnestly strive to meet him there. My, my. Um, uh, we have a, um, uh, another epitaph uh, for uh, someone by the name of Caleb Holmes, um, and uh, he is entombed um, in, the, uh, in the same cemetery. Um, he was a best friend of Silas uh, Edward Meade of North Greenwich. They were tentmates during the, uh, the Civil War. Um, they both fought at the Battle of Darbytown Road uh, just outside of Richmond, Virginia. That was the Confederate capital. In one of his letters, uh, Silas Ed uh, recounted a time when he uh, worked to help unload uh, the injured soldiers. And one of the battered bodies turned out to be Caleb Holmes. And to his hor horror, his tentmate, of course, was among the dead. Um, he wrote um, um, uh, about uh, Caleb's death. It took it very severely, as you can imagine. Uh, he was only 23 years old when he perished, and um, a, para a passage of his epitaph quotes a letter that he wrote, uh, wrote to his mother. Duty to my country comes first, and I mean to do that to the best of my ability. Letter to his mother. Gone in the act of duty, gone in his glowing pride, gone in his manly beauty, our gallant son has died. That was Caleb Holm of, Holmes, of course, who, um, uh, who died. Uh, very, very sad, obviously. Um, there's so many other epitaphs. Let me see if I can find a couple of more before we uh, we close. Well, um, I mentioned, of course, about women. Um, and um, let's see, we have one. Uh, this is one that we find in, in a number of, um, uh, of uh, cemeteries. Dearest mother, thou hast left us, and thy loss we deeply feel. But tis God that hath bereaved us. He can all our sorrows heal. Um, and that's found in a, a number of, um, uh, of places. Um, here's one uh, that is in Tomek Cemetery again. Mary, the wife of uh, George W. Peck, um, she died on September 28th, 1805. She was only 29 years, one month and six days old. Um, it goes as follows. Under this, tome, uh, under this stone, here lies a wife an emblem of human life. The God whom she did most adore will bless and keep her evermore. Um, and uh, nearby in the same cemetery is um, uh, an epitaph for Lucy, the wife of Eldad Holmes. She passed away um, in uh, on January 12th, 1814. She was only 36 years old, one month and six days old, and her epitaph is... A virtuous wife, a mother kind, a saint indeed, a friend sincere, in this cold mansion lies enshrined with a tear. Um, and, uh, and all. Yeah, um, there are so many epitaphs. Let me see if I could do maybe one more. Um, 
Oh, here's one that's interesting. And, and of course, she is a, a woman. There's a large marble memorial um, to Charity Mead. She's the wife of Joshua Knapp. Um, and this is in the Knapp Cemetery off of Round Hill Road up in the backcountry. Um, it's, it's really a fine tribute uh, to, uh, to a woman. Um, and uh, let me just read this to you. By her integrity, disinterested benevolence, faith and charity, she beautifully exemplified the Christian religion. The death came very suddenly. She was entirely resigned. Her mind clear and serene, filled with the presence of God, she anticipated meeting in heaven many of her departed friends to enjoy with them the presence of God. Devoid of envy, selfishness, and guile, resting on Christ with every calm delight, Through death's dark veil she passed without a tear, and faith and hope exchanged for blissful sight. I tell you, uh, my friends, go around and uh, read the uh, the epitaphs. This is just a very, very tiny sampling of what it is uh, that that there is out there. Um, I have created a website that you can go and you can also read uh, these epitaphs. Uh, Instead of publishing the book that I thought about doing, um, I decided to create a blog site. It's open and for free, um, and it is as follows. Here is the address. Reader behold as you pass by dot blogspot dot com. Again, that's reader behold as you pass by dot blogspot dot com. It is free. You can go to it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anywhere that there is online or internet access. So there you go. Thank you very, very much for listening. My friends, I want to thank you very, very much. This is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I am the host of the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast. And this has been our first ever special Halloween show. We really tried to cover a lot. I tried to do it in as little time as I could. But boy, you know, in in a place like Greenwich, Connecticut, we have an enormous amount of history. Um, Any of you know that those of us who have been here a long time, we, we really, we, we don't throw anything away. <laughs> we, we, we record um, many things in, in minute detail in some cases. Uh, I, I really hope that you have enjoyed this, uh, this special show, and I hope that you all have a very, very wonderful, safe Halloween out there. It's really, really been a pleasure being with you. Please, you know what? You can contact me anytime by email by going on the web to Greenwich A Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. It's all one word. Greenwich A Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. You can also find uh, our previous shows on Greenwich A Town for All Again, that's Greenwich A Town for All Seasons. Dot blogspot.com. I want to thank my uh, my supporters and and support uh, and and sponsors. Sorry, very 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 much. I, I think I I, I got to get some Halloween candy. I think that's going to help a lot. Um, and uh, please don't forget to uh, to enjoy and savor the the history and culture that is this special community called Greenwich, Connecticut. Three hundred and eighty one years of history and counting. You are a part of that history, whether you've been here for a very short time or a long time. It doesn't matter. Um, there is so much uh, to find here and so much to be a part of. Go out and explore and have some fun. And stay tuned. We'll have our next podcast show coming up very, very soon. Uh, please join our mailing list by contacting me at Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. You can also help us out a lot by uh, supporting and sponsoring our show. And I can uh, send you details about our latest uh, rate sheet. 
uh, for um, ads and, um, and other announcements and so on and so forth. Well, that's all I have for you, everybody. See ya. Have a great Halloween and uh, stay safe out there, okay? All right, watch out for the goblins and witches and ghouls and so on and so forth. This is Jeffrey Bingham Mead signing off. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now.